We are I. All right, everybody, we're sitting down here with Misty Barnes here tonight and uh, from Southern California. Um, you know, she's just a, a, a person full of intrigue to me, you know, especially because, you know, she does like some treatments involving stem cells, which is obviously, you know, a topic that we talk about like frequently and always want to get to know a little bit more about, um, you know, but, you know, there's a lot more to Misty than just that. And, you know, there's a part of this story too, what I've recently come to understand just as a little bit of uh, a pre-podcast, you know, interview we were talking about is Missy's right in the middle of where all these fires were about six months ago so I'm sure we're gonna be prodding some questions there just to be able to see what that experience was like and uh, welcome to the show tonight Missy thank you for having me yeah so is is this a video and um no, we're just doing audio here right now. I know a lot of people, when we first started off, they're just like, oh, I didn't realize that weird. No, the, the video portion of this right now is strictly just so that you and I can see each other, but um, it is just gonna be the, the audio file. So um, yeah, we were just talking about how, you know, when I called you that you have a, an Aspen phone number. So, you know, kind of reel us in about why you live in Southern California and have an Aspen phone number. Well, because I can't let go of the beauty of that place. I lived there for about a year and a half and um, I'm an avid skier, I love skiing, and uh, it's just one of the best mountains I've ever skied on. Um, and it's just a beautiful place, it, it just feels like magical. There's a, there's a Indian myth that whenever someone, that the Indians who left, I think they were, I'm not sure what Indians they were, but um, when they left the land, they put a curse on it, and the curse is that if you've ever lived in Aspen, even if it's for a month or two, you will always be drawn back to it. No matter how bad things are, you will always want to come back to Aspen. And, and I, I think it's really, it's really what happens. It's so beautiful there. It's just majestic and I love it. What an interesting yeah. curse to put on such a beautiful place for, like one would assume that people would want to end up going back there, but you know, I guess that this was probably a long time ago when the, like, there probably wasn't a ski hill there, like, you know, like luxury homes or anything like that. Well, I think what happened is that, that they moved the Indians from their land and so they wanted, they didn't want, they wanted their land back and I would assume that um, even if you had bad luck in a place like that, you know, wanting to go back would be your way of paying, you know, I mean, I guess your karmic debt or something like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's, I don't see it as a curse, but it's, it's a beautiful place. It's just gorgeous. So only a curse if you might have to buy real estate there. Gee whiz, it's so crazy. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't afford it. So I had to come back. I had to come back and get a job. Yeah. How <laughs> but, long were yeah. you in Aspen for? Uh, I was only there a year. Year? But it was, yeah, it was just, I mean, I hiked every day. I mountain climbed, biked, cross country, skied, everything you can imagine. Did it all and loved it. I go back once a year. There's a classical music festival that I love to go to. It's in uh, July and August. And that's also beautiful. That's one of the best times of year to be there, the hiking, um, the hiking and the biking and out, you know, outdoor sports like river rafting and things like that are big there too. So it was like, you know, being in the outdoors and like kind of like that connection with nature, is that something that you've always been into or did it just solidify it when you got to Aspen? 
No, I always did. But I think when I moved to Aspen, people, you know, from, from California. So friends told me, you're not going to be able, you're not going to be able to handle the cold. You're not going to like it. And it was the exact opposite. I fell in love with the weather. It's, it's not a bitter cold. It's a dry cold. So it's kind of like Utah. It's, it's not like the East coast. So it's a very tolerable cold. And, you know, I'd go out and run and it would start snowing and I'd keep running. It just, to me, it's, it's just so, so clean, you know, and there's something really pristine about snow that I just love. So, yeah, and I'm from Southern Alberta where, you know, it's a very dry cold too. It can be like, you know, minus 30 in Southern Alberta and it's, it's cold, but it's, it's a lot different kind of cold than coastal BC. Like the, the wet cold out here at like, you know, maybe zero or minus five Celsius is like, it's like freezing cold compared to what it seems like, you know, back home in the cold. So yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about there for sure. Yeah. The humidity really can get you. Yeah. What was your favorite like outdoor activity when you were living in Aspen? Like, what's the thing that just speaks to your heart? Snow skiing. Snow skiing. Nothing, nothing beats snow skiing. Yeah. I'd ski on a block of ice if you give it to me. It's all, I love it so much. <laughs> and there's no bad snow day. No bad snow day. Did you ski a lot when you, when you lived in California? Yeah. I mean, I grew up skiing and skied Mammoth and you know Utah and. Uh, just local mountains here, you know, Mount Baldy and, and then, um, traveled through Europe and skied in Europe and, uh, but you know, Colorado skiing is some of the best. I think, I think Vail mountains actually my absolute favorite, but I, I still love Ajax mountain on, 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 um, Aspen. And then last year I tried Jackson hole. I've never done Jackson hole. So that was a really challenging mountain. It was a lot of fun. Mm. So, so how did you get so big into skiing when you were young? Because to travel the world skiing, like I, I do a lot of stuff, but I've never traveled specifically for it. I just kind of travel for fun and experience and, you know, to be able to see the world. But it seems like you've yeah. trekked your skis along with you. Like what, what has drawn you, drawn you to it? Well, I, one year I did, but the other year, the other years that I went to Europe, it was just to travel. So like I did the whole three months travel with your best friend after college thing. And, um, we went all through Europe and then I fell in love with Austria just because of the sheer beauty of Austria and Switzerland I love. So I went back and I have friends that live in Bavaria. So when I've gone back a few times, I went during the winter because to me, Vienna Christmas time is just, it's a postcard. So, um, I've gone and, you know, I'll ski there, but yeah, skiing, I think is my favorite thing. Just yeah on the planet tell me about the sorry to cut you off i'm just i'm always extremely interested when people have spent like an extended time you know whether it be a month or two months three months a year um in europe because the contrast between you know living in europe and you know like us and like western culture here like you know you know granted you know like it was a while ago that you were there for this three months but like did you notice like the difference in culture like you know was there any point in time that you just wanted to move there like what are what are some of the things you just value so much about that experience well i think for for me uh i was right out of college so it's obviously been a while um so it was a little different then than it is now i could i mean we literally i literally would meet people and we'd stay at their house for a week and didn't think anything about it it was um a different time but and that was in the 90s so it's been a while but um what i think for me uh what i loved about it what i still you know i still try to go back every few years if i can i think the sense of tradition is really nice that we you know we miss here certainly in the u.s um and you know they go out and they have their meals and everybody shares together they sit at tables no one knows each other and they make friends you know you make friends and um they're not as work obsessed as we are 
uh, and I just think that, yeah, the culture and the tradition is, they really value it. And, and I think also to older people, I, I notice in Europe, um, they don't tend to have the attitude that older people are sort of, you know, in the way. Um, I think, I think in particular when I was in Holland, I really noticed how they valued, um, maturity and people that were older were actually really respected and their ideas were, you know, considered, I don't know if that's just times have changed in general and that's just how it is everywhere but it did seem to me that there seemed to be more respect for people that had had life experience and wisdom to share actually i do find you know kind of like the older that i get the more that i realize that is missing from our culture and especially like the more people that i know from other cultures who still value that even though that they may live in like you know bc or you know like somewhere that i've traveled Mm -hmm. but you know like as i travel and realize that like you know all these people have such amazing stories to be able to share and like just like insight and like that that wisdom and i don't know why in western culture we're kind of coached to be able to think like there's no value you know to our seniors or you know like they do become like a burden and you know like that they don't have anything to be able to offer us and you know if they simply even have just stories to share where you just you sit with them and they share and they talk or like we go you know to places where they can exchange like those stories like I don't see why we're not taught the value in that because that's always been a big part of human existence is like storytelling and story sharing and like we've completely lost that here yeah, it's interesting. I was at a, a family reunion on Sunday, and I have a cousin, or I don't know where, what, the cousinish cousin. He's, I think he's 90 or 89, and I just sat and talked to him. It's like I just kind of met this side of the family, and I asked him, you know, what did you, know, what did you do when you were working? And he said, he was a reporter. He was a publisher and a reporter for news magazines, all of Los Angeles and Orange County and, like, I was just, you know, tell me more, everything you did. He traveled with the angels. He was their beat reporter. He did everything. And I, and I think, you know, wow, if I hadn't asked him, you know, what he did, I would never know this wonderful, because he's a very modest, kind, you know, he's, he's doing really well, but, and I, he was, he lit up because it was like, he was talking about the days being, you know, following the angels around, telling their stories and publishing newspapers. I mean, newspapers, we used to, we don't read newspapers anymore, but it was like in the seventies and the sixties and he retired in the nineties. And, uh, what a rich, amazing experience this man's had. And you would never know it just by looking at him. So that's why we have to ask and become, I think more invested, involved in other people. Well, and you Um, think like, you know, once you started prodding him for stories, like, you know, like I was going to trigger like all these amazing memories or, you know, like, you know, things he's forgot about or, you know, things that he just might not even think of like a value to be able to share. But like, they're just like, because they became so mundane to him because he had so many or like the bulk of these stories would be so rich to him that, you know, it would lose a little bit of interest. But to people like us, when he's explaining about traveling around with baseball teams and, you know, like, you know, I can't even imagine what like reporting on Los Angeles and like the six and 70s you know was like with like I think like wasn't that around like the time when there was like big mob activity and stuff like out there like especially like in Orange County like yeah like I would have I I never even thought about that but yeah yeah or you know going on and just you know like there were no women in a newspaper so and I'm a writer that's my kind of little secret um and uh you know I was so fascinated and I said were there any female reporters and I think there was like one Wow. In all of those, the papers he worked for, there were one or two women. It was just not something. And obviously at that time, women couldn't go into the locker room. 
Yeah. That didn't until the 90s. So yeah, I totally forgot that. about that until you just said that. Like, that was in our very recent past that women could go like in the locker room. And it's still controversial sometimes, um, women going into the locker room for, for interviews and stuff, mm-hmm. for sure. Wow. Yeah. So explain a little bit. You said something about like, you know, you being a little bit of a, a reporter, like you having like an interest in doing that. Like what's what's the scoop there? Yeah, well, here's the scoop. The scoop is, uh, well, you know, before I started my business, I worked in entertainment and um, I worked in post-production and, uh, uh, you know, live events for the studios. And I was, am a writer. And so I've written, I've uh, written films and I've directed one film that I sold to Showtime. I've uh, written two books uh, that were published and I've had a couple of stage plays I've written. So um, I'm a creative by nature, and um, that's what propels me. In fact, before we got on the phone, I was, I was I'm working on a rewrite of a script that uh, may come back to life, but it's a, uh, it, you know, to, to do it creatively is one thing, to try to make a living at it is a very different thing. And, you know, you may have success and then it goes away, and it's kind of like starting all over. So there's an element of, kind of um, instability that was a little hard for me. I need, I like stability and it didn't really provide that for me, but the creative urge never goes away. So you just keep writing. So is that, is that the part of you that just like burns thick, like every day that just, that's your fire? Yeah. I love to write. It's, um, it's just, you know, I mean, if, if you love to write or if it's something you love to do, you, you can't imagine life without it. And I definitely, make it part of my day yeah so like like reel it all the way back like you know like when did this start like because because like this is essentially like the the like the primary thrust of like you know like we are i and like this podcast is that you know it's like like the, these burning fires inside of people like these passions like the the things that just drive us in life you know whether we get the opportunities to be able to do them every day or whether we don't but it's just like you know having like these these reasons to be able to get out of bed or like these these outlets and how we need to nurture them you know like you know as people and you know like where do they start have you always you know been there you know and even like a big question to me is like did living in aspen like really help fuel that fire like did you become more creative there or did you not like um but like bring us all the way back like i, w- I want to hear it like from okay. from this start, like when did you realize that you're so creative and like when was like putting a pen to a piece of paper just like a part of who misty is oh you, very young i mean six seven so the first uh the first time i remember was writing uh, writing plays. I, I would always write plays. I was that kid, you know, when, when I would go over my friend's houses, it was always like, Oh, Misty's here. We're going to have to move the furniture because she's going to write a state. She's going to write a play and then we're all going to have to be in it. It was kind of <laughs> like, and then I would get kids in the neighborhood to be in my plays. And then I try to charge people to come to my plays, you know, to pay 50 cents to watch them and, you know, give them props. And I, you know, I just was constantly, it was just part of me. It's kind of, was always just something that I did. Um, I, I remember doing Elton John impersonations. I'd dress up like him and wear the outfits and jump around. And I it, just that kind of kid. Um, and then, you know, as I got older, you, you learn that a creative pursuit is not something uh, most of us, our parents, you know, nurture because it's sort of a hard way to make a living. Um, 
and so I, you know, learned, you know, I've got to have a, a background, you know, a, a plan B. But but I did like I was interested in, originally in things like journalism. And um, when I went to university, I studied marketing, but I thought I'd go into journalism. And I got out of school and I went for some of the interviews and I just realized I talking head was not what I would want to do. So I started writing and um wrote a few stage plays and as luck and as luck would have it you know someone would read something and then they'd say we want to produce it and so I pursued I had a full-time job and I was always working in post-production doing business development which is sales um, or with um, producing events and then at night I'd go home and work on my screenplays and my stage plays and I've, I've sold a couple films um, they were optioned uh, one time, you know, either the company goes out of uh, business, they're uh, defunded. One of them, the producer died. The other one, the producer went bankrupt. So I decided in uh, 2001 to make my own film that I wrote and directed and I um, sold it to Showtime. It's got some, it's got Jane Lynch is in it, uh, Gia Caridi's Missy Pyle. So it's got some good actors. It's called Exposed. It's a, it's a satire about women in in the media and competition. And um, so I sold that to Showtime, you know, made 10 cents and, uh, <laughs> and then realized that my, my investor was uh, running a Ponzi scheme. So, um, <laughs> wow, that must've just like blew your mind. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, he was running a Ponzi scheme. And so I was a little concerned. I mean, I didn't know anything about it at the time, but, um, so really my trip to Aspen was like, ah, I think I got to get out of Dodge because I was scared. Yeah. <laughs> so I escaped to Aspen, but I thought I was going to, you know, do more work there. And it just turned out that it wasn't really the place where I was going to end up being. It's not for me. Um, it's too expensive to live, first mm -hmm. of all, but I wasn't creatively inspired there. I was more inspired to be physical and to do the things that I love outdoors wise. And um, then I, so then I lived in, you know, there for a year and then came back and, um, you know, you know, came back and was working in, uh, digital media, but the writing never goes away. And, uh, I just pitched a script like two months, three months ago and someone's interested. It's a script I wrote like 10 years ago, but just thought, you know, maybe now is the time for it. So maybe now's the time for it. I don't know, but I keep writing. And, and then the last three years I wrote uh, a book that I published through Hazelden. It's um, a humorous meditation book. Um, and then I wrote a, another book on, on deading. Um, and that's another humorous meditation. So mm. I just sort of go, okay, I think I'll do this next and give it a shot and try it. So that's kind of, that's how kind is of it, story. you know, like, because being like growing up in like a city that's just like infamous for, you know, probably like an overpopulation of people who are, you know, creative and you know, like writers and actors and everything like, um, you know, like growing up there and then like having, you know, parents and, you know, like, like you said, like all parents are typically not supportive of, you know, people when they go into like creative arts or like wanting to write or to paint or to, you know, act and all that kind of stuff. But it's like, you know, what's it like just trying to in real time? Cause you know, I don't know anybody who's been boots on the ground, you know, like in LA, in that area, you know, like trying to really just do it. But like, you know, you've highlighted some of the typical narratives where it's like, you know, you got like the investors who are into Ponzi schemes, you know, directors who died, you know, people have gone bankrupt, you know, like just 
and chasing this dream <laughs> and then having to like get out of LA, you know, like you have like, you know, like what, what's it like just like, you know, daily trying to like survive in that environment, just knowing that your passion and like your calling and your reason for life is like entrenched in all of this, like drama and like hostility. Like it's just, it, it's, it'd be amazing trying to plot that course, you know, through all that. Yeah. I think, I think that it is, you have to have some, you have to, try to find some grounding because if you don't, it can be, you know, can throw you into a pit of despair actually, because, you know, you're constantly being, you know, as a creative, uh, you're being told you've got to try this, you've got to do this. So I have a hard time when competition is really involved with creativity. I don't think they feed one another. And yet that's what Hollywood is, is competition feeding your creativity, competition feeding each other. So for me, uh, you know, I find, you know, being around other people who share my vision or um, having a camaraderie is really important. But um, ultimately, I stepped back from it because of those things. I felt that I had to compromise in too many ways or I would have to compromise in too many ways. And I don't mean like the, I mean, yes, those things like the Me Too stuff that that's a reality. But that's not even why. I just mean as a as a creator and a writer, um, which is part of the reason why I started this business that I'm in now is that I felt that as a woman, you definitely have a shelf life. And as if someone over 40 can have an original idea or a put together a coherent sentence, I mean, that boggles my mind. But um, for the most part, uh, there, there are still limited opportunities. And, um, you know, not to sound like sour grapes, but there's a lot of nepotism. There's a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. compromise involved. And, and that's not even talking about the script writing part, because once you, you know, you give your script to someone, there's going to be five or six writers that are going to look at it and say, well, we've got to change this. We've got to change that. And filmmaking itself is different than writing. So as a writer, I have a solitary vision and a, a voice in my narrative and the story that I want to tell. Um, but when I, walk out of the writer's role and go into a creative role or as a director, or if you're working with a team of writers, now you've got all their voices too. So making a film is like the, the closest thing to an act of God there is because you don't, you have so many people you're relying on to take that vision and make it look like what you see it in your head. And there are just so many things that can happen that you're completely out of control. So I guess if you're a real control freak, you only write. And if you can let go of some of it, you can direct. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, it's you have to be kind of self-sustaining. Um, and then I think, you know, for me that I had to take it in my own hands. That's why I decided to make my film. Uh, and, and now that I think I've kind of backed off and it's not the most important thing to me, then it feels like opportunities can come. So it, there's no there's no roadmap and there's no um not many mentors, but I think you just keep plugging away. Whatever it is you do, you just have to keep going. And I think that's what the thing that I learned in the business is the person who wins is the one who just does not stop. That's what's it? Sorry, what's it like when you when you give your script to someone? Because like I would feel like I would be so emotionally attached to a script that like I've just spent like hours and days and weeks and months and maybe years writing and it's just like I have this clear you know path and this vision in my mind of exactly like what this looks like the words on the page I probably would know them all you know through and through and then you hand it to somebody and there's like 
four or five writers and they're just like, let's just chop this thing up and like, let's this here, we'll scrap this, we'll add this. Like, like what's that? I couldn't imagine how hard that would be then to get this product back or to watch this process happening and being like, does yeah. it even feel like yours anymore? Like, like, like what is that process like? I think for me, the, as a, when you write, um, if you write a novel or if you write, I think a stage play too, I feel more so that you have the vision, right? You get to articulate that vision in, in your own way. So to me, writing a book is an easier, is the way to get your vision fulfilled. Um, with film, it's, it's, it's not your vision. And uh, so a good coach will tell you, you know, I took all the classes, did a lot of um, writing courses and things. And the best advice is to never share. It's your baby. Never share your baby until it's fully formed. So you wait until you have your sea legs and you feel really confident about it. And even then you're going to get, you know, beaten to death, but you have to totally believe in your story and what you're doing. And even when you do, it doesn't mean that people are going to love it. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's your baby. You know, maybe your baby's beautiful to you, but to other people, it's like, that's one ugly kid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't get to, you know, that, I think that's why a lot of people do get discouraged because, you know, it, it's not your vision. And if you want some modicum of control, then you have to find a medium that, that will serve you and suit you. What was it like the first time that you handed over like a script in that kind of environment? You know, like you've spent like all this time, like writing it and like, you know, you're like, okay, this is, this is my big leap of faith. You know, I got these pages in my hand, I'm going to grip onto them and I'm going to hand them over to somebody. Like, what was that? Like, it was like, was it nerve wracking? Do you remember what it was like? Like, I, yeah, I'm trying to think about that. I think the, sorry. Uh, I'm trying to think of the first time I, the, well, you know what? It pro I mean, I had been doing it since I was a kid, like literally when I was 12, you know, I was getting in trouble for talking in our, our school. We would have these days where they take the kids that were good kids to Disneyland. Oh, <laughs> wow. to go. So I'd always spend the day and try to get like, um, I'd spend the day writing a play, like a comedy play. And then, and then the teacher would kind of let me get, get away with it. And I'd get all the, like, I get the jocks to play certain parts and then the other, you know, like I get everybody involved so everybody could get time from not having to work. Mm -hmm. But, um, so that was sort of like the first time, you know, trying to get, you know, 12 year olds to read my script the way that I wanted. And they did not get it. They were not artists. What is the hell is wrong with these kids? You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. that's kind of how it starts. And then I started realizing, you know, you have to give up control. But I think the first, when I had a first stage play produce was in the early nineties. Um, early and um, yeah, it was wild to sit. It's They do like a table read. So all the actors sit at a table and you get to hear them read your words. And there's, it's really, it's on one end, it's kind of miraculous because you're like, wow, it, a person's reading this. It's in real character. And then it's also like nails on a chalkboard because you think, wow, that did not sound natural at all. Why did I write that line? Or that person wouldn't say that. This character's not right. Or, you know, I have to make some changes. But, you know, I think as you go through it a few times, it gets better. But the first time it's like disaster. You want to just stab yourself in the eyeballs it's horrible it's yeah. horrible because you judge yourself you judge the actors you judge the material um but if you're good and you want to get better that's the only way to do it 
I w- I think I would have like a really tough time the first few times too. Like where like like you said, like how would you not hyper critique yourself? You know, when when people are sitting around reading, like you'd be hanging on every word. You know, like you'd be constantly trying to find ways to be able to improve it, which would probably make it worse than like what you would ever think it would be anyway. Like you know, when we're that self aware and when we're that critical of ourselves, like we typically don't help the situation, and then all of a sudden it, the wheels are really coming off the bus but it's uh but yeah like what was it like at the end like when when everybody got up you know do you remember what you know after the table read was over or just like was everybody else you know like oh this is awesome and you know you were like i can't believe they like this or were they throwing it in the garbage on the way out the door like what uh well it actually was produced uh in northern california so um i think i was surprised that they liked it and i was like wow are you sure you're just being nice what do you want um (laughs) and then when i actually saw the production of it i sat in the back of the theater so it was a 99 so just like over 100 seats then it's sag but it was 99 so it's called a 99 seat theater which means it wasn't sag but so i went to the production of it the first night uh and i sat way in the back um, by myself because I didn't want anybody to know I was in there and then I just sat and listened to some of the comments and um, you know I was surprised because people liked it they were you know they were like this was really good and and then I kind of wanted to go that's me that's me that's yeah. me I wrote it but I didn't you know so um, that play actually became um, a screenplay that was then adapted that was an adapted for screen I adapted it for screen and then I took so the end to kind of answer some of your question is then I took that and wrote it as a screenplay with another writer and we sold it to a group called the shooting gallery, um, which they did a lot of, they did a lot of Billy Bob's movies, a couple of uh, Tarantino movie. Now that it's called the shooting, they called TSG, but this was a while ago. And, um, so I rewrote it for screen and um, rewrote, rewrote for a year and a year. And I got like a thousand dollars a year, a thousand dollars a year for like five years. And finally we were ready to go into production and um, they were, they went bankrupt. Oh, so that's how it goes. That was one of the three movies that happened to. So when you so, were sitting in the back of the movie theater, just, you know, like watching this, you know, like, this the because it was a movie theater, right? Just to be clear, yeah. So no, when no, you're no, in no, the back of the stage, that was a stage play. Stage yeah, play. so that was in a stage theater. Yeah. Okay, so when you're in the back of this like stage theater and you're and you're just you're watching like like what are some of the emotions like going through? I know you were saying saying that you were saying they're listening to like you know like the comments you know trying to like connect with the people, but it must have just been surreal just knowing that like the only reason why like all these people are here, the only reason why there are these people on stage is because you've created this this work of art that people are now expressing you know like like that must have just been incredible and like after that like what did you do to celebrate that moment oh well i you know it it is it's um it's humbling and uh, it's just that it's a way i think you know if that's what your desire is and you love doing it you just feel like wow, I connected, like I connected to all these people. And um, that's a pretty powerful thing. You know, it feels, it's, it is magical. It is like giving, it's like, I don't have children, but I think it's probably like giving birth. Like there, this is out there. People received it. It touched them in some way. It may affect their, you know, it may affect their life, may affect their relationships. And, and um, it, it's a really powerful, but 
you know, humbling feeling. And then, you know, you feel that for about 15 minutes and then you, if you're me, you go, okay, that second scene was completely, when she said this, that was unbelievable. That sucked. Okay. So that's got to get fixed. So, uh, the celebration, most of the writers I know don't, don't go celebrate. They're like, boy, that all they can do is criticize themselves. Uh, I, like I said, I think, you know, the celebration part is is something that I don't know many people who are writers do. <laughs> they yeah. just go back onto more self-flagellation and how I could do it better. Um, but I but I'm learning. You know, I I'm trying to do that now. Like what, I had a book that was published three years ago, and I, you know, I had a little party, and, and that's actually new. You know, we don't we don't usually we kind of go back to the grind writers are sort of the workhorses of the entertainment industry we just go back to work do you feel as though that that takes something away from like like i would feel almost there would be like great inspiration just being able to like relish in that moment and just be able to like like really absorb it and, and appreciate it for what it is you know because you know like really in a situation like that like everything could always technically i guess be better like you know everything could always be rewritten in, in a different kind of way you know and you could rewrite it a thousand times and rewrite it a thousand times more and then a thousand times again you know but like i really feel like there's a, a big part of like the creative process that you guys are missing there because you know if you don't take that time with just to appreciate again like that you know people have taken time out of their lives to be able to come watch like you know people who want to live this life you know and you know act and you know perform like they've they've chosen to be a part of this experience somebody's decided to direct it somebody's funded it like like all of these things and it's like it's all a byproduct of the the creativity that you've been able to express through your hand you know and it's like yeah. i feel like there should just be like this this moment where you just you're so elated you just want to get out there and just love life for a moment not get back to the pen and the pad and change it a thousand times I, i'm gonna throw myself a big party this week i think that's what i should do yeah absolutely <laughs> but I, you know i mean i'm just that's kind of the reality i think of being when it's a serious like business versus writing for enjoyment and i write for enjoyment now so because i'm not in the biz i don't write to please other people i write to please myself now um and do I have a critical nature still? Yeah, but it's not like, I think when you're kind of striving to get there and you know there's competition and all that stuff going on, I think that's where that enters in. It's gotta be like better, it has to get better and better and better. And I think ultimately that can be, yeah, it can actually be a, a creativity killer. So is there a lot of camaraderie amongst like writers is like, is everybody supportive of each other? Like, like helpful, or, you know, like, or do, you, do you guys have each other's back or is it everybody's just trying to stab each other in the back to be able to get their script in or, you know, like, like what's that community like? I, you know, I can only share my experience and I, uh, I find, I found with, uh, novel writers, writers that are in that medium where, you know, writing books or um, there tends to be a good camaraderie. I feel that. I felt it. Cause, and then, but then I was also in write, a writer's group that the whole goal was to be supportive. And, and I've been in writer's groups where it is, that's the goal. I found that when it came to screenplay writing, there was no camaraderie. It's very competitive, very cutthroat. Unless you're writing with a partner, which I did write with two partners. Um, but even at that, there's still that underneath, like we've got to make this happen. We've got to get it out there. We've got to get better. So probably leads to less enjoyment. But 
there definitely is not a, in my experience, there was not a camaraderie when it came to script, screenplay writing. Yeah. Is just there not. any like, just like outrageous or crazy stories that you've like accumulated along the way? Like, you know, like what are some of the most like outrageous things that you've seen or heard or you've done and like being a part of this industry? Because like, like this industry is just like infamous for like every possible scenario your mind could ever think of. Like, so I imagine when people are just like engulfed in this lifestyle, like you've kind of seen and heard it all. I think I should do, I think I should do a podcast on those stories, huh? Wouldn't that be funny? Um, Cause now that I'm not in it, I don't have to worry. I, I'm trying to think, I mean, there's really, I, I have, I have a, I have a lot. Um, I'm just thinking like on this set of, well, I mean, the fact that my investor went to prison is kind of a big deal. He's still in prison. Um, and I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, it does tend to attract a lot of strange people that want to get in, you know, for the, the glamour of it. Um, but I mean, you know, I, I worked what I, God, I mean, there's so many, I, I'd have to, I can't even pull one out of my head right now. Just other than I, I was writing and uh, I was writing an award show, uh, for a big organization. And, uh, I had written all the the story, you know, the whole show itself, and um, there was a woman at the time who was a big celebrity on TV, and um, she just made my life living hell. Like she would take the script, and and she literally only had like two. She was up. It was an award show, and um, she would change lines, and she would change things that it would say, and from now on like say the line was from now on she would she would come back and say and this was for television lifetime and she said um this needs to be changed i would like it to i want to rewrite it and i was of course okay you'll rewrite it and some of the, the verbiage was heretofore so she, all that she had to change it to say heretofore i mean that's kind of a silly example but the point is that everybody has to have their hands in everything and when i was shooting my film I, I, one of the lead actors who, who was a royal pain in the ass, just a difficult pain in the ass, uh, got mad. He got mad at me for something because I asked him to do a take too many times and he didn't want to do it. So he stormed out and locked himself in his trailer and refused to talk to uh, refused to talk to anyone but me. I had to s- stop everything, all production, get off the set and go walk in his uh in his trailer and he demanded an apology and if I didn't apologize he was gonna um you know quit the movie and ruin everything because he was my lead so um you know things like that you know when when it's happening to you for the first time you are befuddled and you don't know how to handle it and you just think oh my god life's falling apart and then I think after you've been through it a few times you just realize these some of these people are just truly insane and this is the only place they feel power so they've got to so you have to just get through it you know what was it like directing a a movie or directing like a production for the first time like like that way you like you know like you're you're guiding an entire ship of like all these people these scenarios and you know like like everything's resting on your shows like it just like talk about nerve wracking to be able to come up with like this amazing final product and you're relying on so many other people to like work, you know, in a cooperative environment to actually like produce this vision. Like, you know, like what was it like doing that for the first time? Terrifying. 
I mean, terrifying. By the time I had made my film, I had produced live, a lot of live shows. But even when I produce live shows, it, it's terrifying every time because there's always, you know, you're dealing with personalities. And sometimes, you know, I would there would be 300 personalities and they would some would be celebrities, some would be volunteers, some would be teamsters, you know, everybody's. So, um, you know, it, it's it is terrifying. And I you just kind of you have to stay with your vision you have to the thing that I learned is that you really have to trust your own gut and not let other people guide you and that was the biggest challenge for me was to not let other people second guess my decisions and to continue going in the direction that I wanted and and, you know it takes some cojones to do that and I didn't always have it sometimes I would fold to the pressure but um you know, it's just a learning experience, but, but yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty terrifying at first. Yeah. So then I guess that kind of segues me into like asking like the, the question, like, like what was like the biggest high and what was the biggest low? Like what were, what were the, what was the yin and yang in your, in your life, you know, while you're going through like these experiences or, or is that hit like too close to home for you? I don't want you to say anything that you don't feel comfortable sharing. I'm, but in, my biggest, I'm in my biggest low right now. We're in this second, this actual moment. I'm kidding. <laughs> talking to you, talk, being, to, yeah. being involved with some like Canadian right now is like the biggest yeah. low. <laughs> no, no. Um, I'm trying to think like I think the biggest time was um, was making my film you know being on the set every day was nothing matches it I mean there's nothing for me skiing is the only thing that gets me close to that same feeling because your brain's on fire it's like all these decisions creatively every nuance from the actors to the you know AD to the team you know everything the set design it's all your baby it's all your vision and it's an amazing feeling it's the best feeling and then along comes with that the terror of if you screw this up guess who's you know guess who's responsible to you um and then probably the biggest i would say probably the biggest low was when i didn't sell it and make a bunch of money because I thought for sure I'd get a theatrical release and I sold it to Showtime, but every filmmaker's dream is to, to get it into the theaters. I mean, I got it, at, it, I got into two theaters, so that's that's not true, but you know, I wanted it, I got a horrible review in The Hollywood Reporter, horrible review, like the worst review. <laughs> he called me talentless, um, I don't know what he said, misbegotten talent. I don't know what he said. And it, it broke my heart. So I think for a long time, I was really, um, it really affected me, impacted me like on a creative level. I didn't write for like a year after that, two years. Um, criticism, that was probably the biggest down after that high of being able to make a film and being so excited and on the set every day and how how that burst that bubble, you know, of not being able to get it to, to sell it um, in the way that I thought it should be sold, but then also to get bad feedback. It sucks. I don't One. know how people deal with bullying today online because I, I could not do it. <laughs> I couldn't. I hate it. Criticism is hard, and, and when it's in print and it's in The Hollywood Reporter, it sucks. Well, and especially, you know, like you've outlined several times about how, like, you know, you're – 
you and your field and your colleagues are so prone to be able to like hyper critique yourselves anyway. So I imagine like when you actually get some real critiquing and feedback that's negative from somebody else, you know, especially that, you know, holds clout like in your business and in your industry and you know people are going to be reading it like, like that must really hit home. Yeah, it's, it's that, you know, it's that every, you know, the imposter syndrome, you know, you're like, oh my God, they've all found out that I'm a fraud. Then as time goes by, you start realizing that critics critique. Actors act, critics critique, writers write. So you just keep writing. Yeah, and you know, like, so like, what was like a, a pivotal moment? Cause like, that was one thing that I wanted to, to loop it back around to is like, you know, what was the process climbing back out of that moment? Like, you know, cause that could really sink some people, and, you know, especially in the, the area in the business you're in, like, you know, I could easily see like that, you know, being somebody where they get like addicted to drugs or alcohol or like the, like the wheels just completely come off the bus. Like they're on this incredible emotional high and then they just get completely slammed. Like I would imagine that would be, you know, really, you know, hard for most people. And, you know, and again, that you were able to climb out of it is a real showcase of your character as a person as well. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it did affect me. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why I went to Aspen because that was my like escape. But oh, I'm going to go somewhere beautiful and, and get out of Cal- LA and Hollywood. I hate this place. I hate these people, you know, um, licking my wounds. And it took a couple of years. I, like I said, I, I think that I didn't write uh, for about two years. Um, and I got that writer's block um and then what happened was i eased myself back into uh, a writer's group where there was a lot of camaraderie a lot of safe it was a really safe group of people you know and they all kind of knew the story because part of what i would write about in this group was some of the things that had happened during the filming and and they all found it funny and it's hysterical when you read it but when you're living it, it's not funny so that was sort of my way back in you know um was to take it gently, you know, and just be with a group of people that would, there I could share my writing, even if it was ridiculous. And they would, you know, in, in the group I was in, we didn't critique each other. So you just read your writing and then people would, the only thing they would say was, you know, I didn't understand this. Can you clarify? And that was all there was to it. So in a really non judgmental place, that gave me that kind of safety. And I did that for like a year, year and a half. And then I just, started working on another book and I think it is that's the addiction right like that's the addiction I went right back to writing after I you know nursed my wounds for enough time and then just went back to the next thing yeah and you know you kind of like glossed over pretty quickly like the two books that you you know that you wrote at the beginning um can you just explain like you know like your first book off the beginning kind of get into a little bit of detail about it because i had seen on like your website or you know somewhere online like i like probably your latest book or your second book but i I didn't know anything about like the first one or like what 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 it's about or like you know like the details of it so Uh you know like like throw it out there like what and like what inspired you to write it like what was the whole story behind it so these are these are both. Uh, so the two books are. Did you see the Did you see the one? If you leave me, can I come with you? That's, that's it, the one yeah. I'm speaking of. Yeah, this one. Yeah. So that's a meta. That's a humorous meditation book. Um, so I'm involved. I've been involved in a 12-step group called Al-Anon, which is a group for people who have friends or relatives that are you know have addiction problems. And I haven't had the addiction, but the people 
that I relate to codependency. Um, I, I go to meetings for it. And um, one of the things I noticed in some of my meetings was there's a lack of humor. Everybody took themselves very, very seriously. So I was in those meetings for about four years and I went, oh my God, somebody's got to start laughing. I mean, the meetings I went to, people did laugh a lot, but I would visit other meetings and the people would be so depressed. I mean, it was horrible. So. Um, I just wanted to share some of my recovery in a humorous way. So I took the typical format of, um, you know, like here's your meditation and here's the thought for the day. And then I sort of spun it on its head and um, kind of make fun of myself and other codependents. It's a pretty big, you know, a lot of people are codependent, but I um, sort of took a, a pretty, you know, sarcastic view of, my own tendencies and um so i called the book if you leave me can i come with you and i was going to self-publish it uh and then one day i just sent it into a publisher and said hey i've already finished this book and i'm going to self-publish it do you think it might be of interest and i sent it to hazelden which is the top um recovery uh publisher in the u.s and they liked it so they published it and um that was in 2015, 2016. And, um, and then while I was on that role, I decided, so I, we published that and, um, I did kind of the rounds of talk show rounds and, um, it's, it's done, it's done. Okay. I mean, it's a recovery book. It's, um, self-help. So humor in that industry is, is a, is a little different. So some, some of the reviews, I don't know if you've read them, some of the reviews are like, she's sarcastic. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's kind of the point. If you can't tell from the title, what this is going to be about, you're, it's not, you're not really my people, but, um, so that was that book. And it just takes a look at codependency and sort of people that are tend to be codependent and gives them a little bit of humor, infuses some humor in it. Did it help like having the ability to be able to like laugh at yourself, you know, but in like a really controlled environment, you know, because, you know, you're able to be extremely sarcastic with yourself. But what I would assume in an environment where like, you know, it was very safe for you as a person, you know, because, you know, if you went a little too far, you could walk away from the computer or, you know, like if you wanted to like kind of take, you know, you could erase lines, you could take this, you could add this, but like, like, did you feel like it just, it really helped like kind of like release you of like a lot of maybe this persecution that you were, you know, holding against yourself? Oh yeah, I think so. I think, and I, and, and the great part was the publisher had no notes, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't try to rein me in, which I thought they would, cause there's a big publisher and they're, you know, they've, they've done this before. They did not rein me in at all. They were like, go for it, push it out there. And I, yeah, for me, it was a, it was a totally therapeutic because, you know, going through, um, you know, understanding how powerful codependency is and how um, addiction can affect people and how it affects the people who are with, you know, the addiction and the people in their lives, um, it can get pretty heavy and pretty intense. And, you know, I just think that, you know, they say comedy is tragedy plus time. And I, that those words can be truer when we have some levity and we've you know, gone through whatever our process is that I had to go through to kind of get my own level of self-awareness, then I started being able to laugh again. I mean, it wasn't right away. It's not like I walked in to 12-step rooms and started laughing and was like, yeah, cut up. It was not that at all. But once I started 
you know, had some mastery over my own emotions and felt like I had some perspective, then I could, you know, make kind of fun. And most of the humor is self, you know, it's kind of making fun of my own tendencies to be whatever it is I'm talking about that particular day. But, but yeah, the humor to me, no matter what the situation is, humor always tells a story, um, but it brings kind of people in instead of, um, I find humor is a way to, you know, bring people together. Or I hope so. And, and, and like, what does like codependency mean to you? Like, like what, like, how do you connect with that? Like, what is it? Like, why is that like such a, a big part of your life? Or why did you feel like that you needed to be like, you know, like cleansed of this or, you know, like writing this book, like about codependency, like to be able to help, you know, like yourself, but fundamentally then like help others, you know, be able to, you know, manage what they're feeling with like codependency. But like, what does that mean to you? Well, so for me, I grew up uh, in a family where there was a lot of addiction, so alcoholism and addiction. And so my story is that I kind of always looked uh, to try to solve other people's problems and try to fix it and try to fix myself. And, you know, just this never ending um, desire to control the world and and everything around me. And um, it led me to you know, to what happens is you stop looking to yourself for the answers and it's always outside you, you know, so that focus becomes other people. So where with the addict, it becomes the drug or the drink or the whatever, the sex or whatever it is they're addicted to. For a codependent, our obsession is the person who's making the action, you know what I mean? So the person who's the addict. And, um, but then when we don't have addicts, we start just obsessing on anybody. <laughs> yeah. The mailman, my next door neighbor, it doesn't have to be another addict. It's just that our predilection is to solve or fix something outside ourselves. So what this taught me was the whole point of the program was to get me to focus back on myself and not in a selfish way, but in a way like, hey, let's rein it back. Take care of yourself first get this get this straight other people will take care of themselves you don't have to worry about them but that's the source of the humor too because i find that you know when i i know when i meet other codependents i can tell them you know we're just there's there's a tribe you know there's a tribe of us and um and for those who've had recovery for a little bit of time and have some ability to laugh at themselves it's pretty funny because you realize we're just we're control freaks. We're trying to you know make everything right for everybody else, and people don't really want our help. <laughs> that's the best part. It's like I want to help you, but I, nobody really wants my help. So um, that's why it's good to have an artist, an artistic side, because then I can start controlling my little characters, my little world in my book. <laughs> well, that's what I was just going to ask you. Like, is that a yeah. huge part of the reason why you connect with you know being a writer so much? Is because then you can have all of these like hypothetical situations where like you can just work your way through all those narratives you know of like you know like connecting with people forming these relationships but it's a completely contextual like like that must really help somebody who's codependent and i would imagine that you know like you said you know like you know comedians or you know anybody with like comic relief is like tragedy plus time it's like well you talk to like any comedian and usually most comedians are pretty you know self-aware that you know like they've had like addiction in their family or they've had troubled childhoods or like you know like that's what gives them the ability to be able to like throw all the shit at the wall that they can and not worry about any of it sticking because no matter what anybody says or what they put 
felt there. They've been and seen worse than that. And, you know, I imagine like with this, you know, like with your writing, like you can explore every avenue possible. Like, you know, even if it's something that, you know, somebody never reads or sees, like, you know, just like, you know, writing that is like your life's journal. Like these, these characters are kind of like your life's narrative in your life's journal. Well, you know, story connects us all, right? So, and there are very few people who at this point, if you're over the age of 25, that has not had a relationship with somebody that's had some major addiction, right? <laughs> or crisis, right? So it's it's life, you know. Um, but I think when we hear these stories, it makes, and we tell a story and we've had experiences that make our, make it deeper and richer, you know? And I think that's why, um, you know, personally, for me, that's why I wrote. It was an escape as a kid. You know, I'm going to create these worlds. And then as we get older, it's like, I'm going to create these worlds. And now I have all these experiences that I can fold into them. And now other people can relate to them. So I can make these characters, you know, these are real people. Some of them are an amalgamation of all the people I've known. Some of them are not real at all. Some of the characters are people I literally just saw in a coffee shop last night that I put together with my uncle. It's, you know, and that's a beauty, beauty of story. Um, but yeah, you, I mean, there's certainly that element of being able to create a world. You know, it's like the, um, there was a movie out a year ago. It was a Zemeckis film with... Uh, um, what's his name? Um, Steve Carell. It's he. He's. I think he's autistic, and he creates these world worlds of marble or mar marble. Oh, it's great, yeah. You know, um, so he he has yeah. no ability. I, I haven't seen the film, and I want to, but it seems like he he can't like communicate in the real world. But he creates these characters, and in a lot of ways, that's what happens with comedians or writers. They might not be the most functional people in the real world, but they create these universes. And if you can do that and connect with other people and tell a story and, you know, breach somebody, wow, that's the most amazing feeling. And with my books, when I get a review or someone emails me and says, I read that book and it makes me laugh and I'm having a really difficult time and I just... You know, you talking about, you know, chasing after somebody in the car or running in the street to try to catch someone. It's like... This is the crazy shit we all do. And thank you for telling me that you did it too. And it takes the shame and the isolation and the, you know, all that angst. And we have to laugh at it it's because it's like, it's crazy shit, but everybody does it. We all do. I mean, in this group of people for whatever, however you identify them, um, and, See, exit, so. and like that's like like you know like i was saying before like that's legitimately the whole point behind like this this podcast is like you know where like i feel is you know like as though like that you know no one person deserves to be like on a pedestal. so like for one like they we're all amazing at like individual things mm -hmm. but like you know i try to be like you know like overly transparent or overly vulnerable like on this podcast to be able to afford like hey like this is the landscape that i want to be so people feel comfortable you know in sharing stories because we all do that like like we've all gone too far we've all you know swore we've all spit we've all chased a car we've all done all this stupid shit in our lives like we've all had these great moments we've all had like these devastating moments and you know but like if we're authentically not scared to be able to share all those components like what it is is it's not 
affording ourselves like humility or like embarrassment but what it is really is allowing a, a door and a window for other people to be able to walk through to be like yeah we're all fucked up like we all have crazy shit going on and you know like and the more we try to like hide that you know like the worse it feel i feel like you know we become because you know, like the, the humility is saying like, you know, like, yeah, I'm not perfect. I'm not trying to be perfect. You know, like there's, there's no advantage in life to be, you know, chasing like perfectionism. Like it's, and the more that we do that, the more that we rob other people away of just being human. And, you know, like that's where, like where you said, like in these books, it's like, you know, if you're chasing somebody in the car for some reason, you know, like who knows what it is, but like at that moment, it seemed right. And everybody has one of those stories, but if, if you have the balls to be able to share that story you're gonna allow other people to be able to have like that that same courage and that that same like tenacity to be able to share that which is then gonna allow somebody else to be able to share their story too and you know that's why like i appreciate you know like you kind of letting those like those barriers come down and like you know talking about those kind of things because like that is like the ultimate like affordability that you know like we can give other people saying like yes like this is the human experience like this is what it's like to live life 24 hours a day you know like we all have these stories to share i just happen to have wrote a book about it so we can all laugh about it together because i've laughed about it enough now that i can share it with you yeah and I, I appreciate that message when i see it on you know your instagram feed that yeah there's nobody's nobody's an icon nobody's any better there's no hierarchy and it's actually more um heartfelt when I when I see someone being really honest about who they are and what they're going through um, and 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 to be you know that transparent all the time is not easy um, but at the same time that's the only way we ever grow emotionally or connect with other people is through you know telling the truth I don't feel any better when I see somebody who's airbrushed and looks perfect I it just does not make my life better we know that in studies that people who spend a ton of time on Facebook are actually less happy um, but when we see people tell their story when we see stories of like kids with cancer and the families doing everything they can I mean people's heart you know that's the kind of stuff we need to not particularly that way but you know what I mean like reality like you're saying being transparent and I really love reading that when I you know when I see your posts I really like that I appreciate that a lot that's why I was excited to talk today um you know which is you know even like you know like a post I I made today you know like this young you know courageous um you know young woman that's you know attack like the world at the forefront saying you know like i'm gonna invest all my leverage you know into like climate change and you know i'm gonna be a voice you know like i'm going to like you know speak in front of the un i'm gonna challenge these world leaders you know like well i made it I posted a few things about because I actually, you know, having three daughters myself, like I just, I find it just absolutely inspirational, like seeing like her do this in this movement, you know, so like I made this post um, and like the, uh, the caption of it was, you know, it was on Facebook saying that um, I will humbly follow her. Will you question mark? Um, and it just lit a fire on like mm -hmm. Facebook and it ended up in some guy calling me an Islamo-Nazi because um, my girls are brown and Muslim and uh, and I was talking about like as he was saying that um, she has uh, two braids in her hair and she's this white girl with blonde hair and that's the same imagery that Hitler used in his propaganda for like association mm -hmm. 
And I was like, well, I'm like, I used to also shave my head when I played sports so that I didn't get as hot and it was a way to be able to cool down. And I have tattoos and I'm white. I'm like, does that make me like a white nationalist? Or, you know, does that make me neo-Nazi? Because ironically, I happen to have daughters who are brown and are Muslim. So I'm like, maybe I don't know how to identify myself. And uh, that's when he called me an Islamo-Nazi. And I'm like, I don't even know if that's like, if that's a contradictory of like terms. Like, I don't even know if you can be pro-Islam and a Nazi at the same time. I'm like, but like, again, like this is like that, like that internet world, like that we live in today, which just like absolutely like astonishes me that, you know, like this is the reality. And the worst part about it is like, this is the reality of adults. You know, like this is like, this is an adult man who self-proclaims to be a philosopher, you know, and like he just like, just lights my Facebook on fire. Like there's all these people just going at it. And I'm just like, it was just, it was hilarious to watch. Like I'm just sitting there like, like just participating in it just in a strictly comical matter. But, you know, again, it's like the only thing that I see is, you know, just this person, you know, because like I, I challenge him, I'm like, are you actually hurt because a 16 year old girl has a bigger voice than like what you will probably ever have, you know, like, and if you have done more with your life, feel, please feel free to post pictures of like, you know, the last time you presented, you know, your platform in front of the UN, you know, or, you know, like more importantly, like when you rallied millions of people worldwide, but more importantly, like how does your wife feel about you attacking a 16 year old girl on hmm. the internet for whatever reason, you know, like, it, like whether you agree with her message or not, like this young lady, like, like yeah. what is she done? So like, I, I find that to be around. So like, you know, like where you're saying that, you know, like these are the things where it's like, you know, I feel like if we just took more time to be able to like, you know, reconnect ourselves like human beings and break down all these barriers and break down all these walls that like we've put up, there would just be so much less of that. You know, and it's just like, you know, like affording ourselves all the opportunity, just a little bit more humility saying like, yes, I'm a human being. I will, I'm a series of mistakes to be able to get to this point. I'll be a series of mistakes until I die. Like, I'm okay with that. Like, I, I legit, I like, I want to be okay with that because I feel like that's the only reason that allows me to be able to smile every day is being like, yeah, you know, like. I've messed up and I've met, I'll mess up today. I'll mess up tomorrow. And I'll, I will continue to do that. But again, it's like having a, a, a network of people around you. They're just like, that's okay. But like, that's fine. And like, that's where I feel like we like when we create this hierarchy in life and you know, like people are put on like these, these pedestals and you know, like saying like, you know, this is the start of like the downfall because then we have to find a pecking order of like where we fit in you know, which again, like that's where like codependency like starts to come in. It's just like, where do I fit into this to be able to like find value in myself, except for just being a part of this, this global community saying that we can all just fit in and, you know, be present together. Yeah. I think, you know, that, so for me, the, uh, the whole social media thing is I use it for work, not really personally, because I, I don't, I think it's detrimental in a lot of ways. I think, you know, it's, this is enough, no new information, but when people are out living their lives, they're, they don't really feel like the need to comment on everybody else's. Like, I'm actually out living my life. I don't really need to sit on Facebook and tell you what I think about everything, because I know you don't care anyway, and you're not in my life, I'm not in your life, not you, but 
in this instant, what is what is it going to do? Absolutely nothing. So I think we've got a nation of um, armchair philosophers, armchair athletes, armchair, you know, whatever. Um, and if people invested in their own life and their own community and in their own relationships, that stuff would like kind of fall by the wayside. I think we've just got people who they have no passions for anything. When you have a real passion, you don't you're not sitting around denigrating anybody else. You're like what you just said. I, I don't agree with this or I don't agree with that, but I'm doing my own thing and I'm happy. Good luck to you, you know, but it's gotten more and more so. And I think that, um, you know, people need hobbies. Sorry. But, you know, but like this, you know, brings back to like the whole point, like, like this podcast is like one of my biggest hobbies and one of my biggest passions. I never thought like I would ever, you know, be doing something like this. And I love every moment of it. You know, it allows me to be able to connect with people like you, you know, but like the big thing is, is just like, you aren't like that because you spend that time, you know, writing scripts, you spend writing plays, you know, you spend writing books and it's like you if you had the time to be able to do that, it's going to take away from this thing that you're passionate about, you know, and that thing that you're passionate about means everything to you. So why would you take that time away simply just be able to sit on social media and just like waste your life away? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the same with you with, you know, with athletics, it's, and, and now, and the podcast too, it's, it's when we're doing, I think it's like constructive, you know, whether or not the world accepts it as something of a, piece of beauty or an art piece of art it doesn't matter it's that i'm doing something that makes me feel good that's not destructive that's constructive that has creative and, and your podcast is your creativity outside your athletics and you know it's if people get invested in their own lives it's like that stuff i do think kind of falls away but you know it it it, it takes a level of self-awareness it takes discipline and it's easy to just it's, it's hard to have discipline, but once you establish it, you know, the benefits are there, you know, the benefits of working hard, the benefits of sticking to something and getting better. It's like the 10,000 hours, you the Gladwell thing. You get so much better in it, you know, with writing, it's like the first time you have to do a rewrite of a script, you're just absolutely beside yourself. You know, after you've done a hundred of them, now you're like, okay, I know how to fix that scene. It's right. And I know where it is. And I know, you know, you're laying in bed or you wake up in the morning. You're like, oh my God, that's the scene where Alex, you know, you like, it just yeah. now becomes a part of your life and you're who you are. Um, and I wish that people would, whatever that is for them, find that because we'd have a lot more happy people, I think. Well, see, and, and you know, like when I first started this podcast, it was it was under the um, the notion, like the preconceived notion of saying, like, okay, well, I actually feel like when people are void of a passion, they're also subsequently void of a community to be able to support them. Because when you have a passion, something that drives you, you are naturally drawn to a community of people somewhere. And like, you know, when I see like these internet trolls, like this guy today, and you like, you know, all these battles going on on social media and all that kind of stuff, it's like, because when you, you're not passionate about anything and then you've connected with this community of other people who just want to like slam people on the internet. So now you have found that sense of community, but you don't realize how destructive that is, you know, because you might be able to 
you know, shut your phone down or, you know, close your laptop or walk away from your, your computer. But like really at the end of the day, like, you know, like you can really hurt some people like that. It's just like, I feel like I'm fortunate enough that I can walk away from like, you know, like these verbal assaults from this guy. And it's like, it really means absolutely nothing to me as a person, except for I, I get afforded the opportunity to be able to laugh at somebody. But I also can share thousands of stories that get shared with me all the time about how that exact situation has led somebody into like some of the worst moments of their lives you know it's all because like you know people have just not had a chance or been afforded the opportunity to be able to connect with themselves enough to understand like what they're really passionate about you know because I thought like this this podcast would have a little bit more to do with like you know like physical activity or athletics you know like things like this but you know it's been you know now from like writers you know like yourself you know to um you know, then you're getting into like, um, um, like craft beer, you know, you're getting into like all of these things that like, you know, there's just a substantial amount of like different avenues that like it has gone. And I find it to be very refreshing that so such a diverse amount of people have come on the podcast to be able to give people the opportunity to say like, life is everything. Like life is just not like the things you see in front of you. Like life is like this endless amount of possibilities. And if you just want to explore it to like the smallest degree, you'll realize that there is millions of options out there for you to be able to connect with like, you know, like communities of like people who are like really starving to be able to be with you. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah, I like that. That's nice. Isolation, you know, is probably the the critical component, you know, to people that are just in those situations of like online that we're talking about. And I think even in the world where a lot of ways we're more connected, a lot of ways we're not. So you're right. That's that community. Um, no matter what it is, if you're struggling with an addiction or not, or if you just want to paint or if you like to swim or, you know, play rugby, um, we're social creatures and we need that. We, we need that in our lives um, and to isolation, which can be created by being on the computer by yourself all the time, just gets you more isolated and more angry, I think. Mm. And that's what's happened. People are taking it out on each other. Yeah. So what's your what's your second book all about? Like you were saying, like we, we briefly talked about your first one, but what's your what's your second book? So the second book is called uh, Forgive Us Our Debts, Please. And it's about, it's a medita it's another humorous meditation. I actually think it's funnier than the other one, but um, it's a, but it's not a funny subject because it's about debt. Mm -hmm. So it's a meditation for people who, um, there's another, there's a 12 step program called Debtors Anonymous. And I also am a member of that community. Um, and you know, it just talks about our relationship with money and, uh, in my book, I talk about it's it's not an easy sell of book, and that's why Hazelden didn't publish that one because it's hard to make people laugh when they're struggling with money and finances. Um, it's hard to look at your own self and realize you've made choices that are pretty stupid because of some belief you have that's tripping you up. You know, it's I admit it's so esoteric. I, I I mean, the people that have read it like it a lot and they think it's funny, but it kind of, and I, and I, it's not a pat on the back. I don't mean this to sound this way, but it's sort of like a master's degree in that it's a fine line. I mean, you really, you have to be willing to look at yourself on this microscopic level, be aware of your own frailties, be willing to laugh at them. And, um, 
it's not easy. It's, it takes a lot of work. And, and again, it's not because I'm so genius. It's because, you know, I sat in those rooms and I had to look at my relationship to money and um, especially working in Hollywood all that time, you know, like things are good and then they're really bad. And then, and then you get into these really shitty spending patterns and get yourself in trouble. But usually there's something driving it and our relationship to money is much like our relationship to people I find. And, um, if we're afraid of money or we're afraid to keep our budget or if we're afraid to, there's a lot of books on the market about, you know, how to file, you know, how to do your taxes, how to keep your numbers straight. But for those of us like me who really struggle with just doing it, there's a block. There's like some kind of sabotage going on. So what I did was kind of uncovered it and then realized that in that same way, it's easy to get really heavy about it. It's harder, but it's more rewarding to look at those parts of myself. You know, for I'll, I'll just give an example. Like I used to have this, um, I used to have this, you know, really bad, like I had this habit of like not wanting to open my mail because I didn't want to know what was in it. And I, you know, people who don't do that don't think, they think that's really crazy behavior. And it is really crazy behavior. But if you're the person that's doing it to you, it's not crazy and it makes perfect sense. So in the same way that I did the book, you know, with a, if you leave me, can I come with you? Each day was, today we're talking about things like X, Y, Z. So, you know, I talk about how I always expected, I, I had this crisis where I'd get these jobs and they'd be big jobs, but then I'd show up and like a month into the job, I'd have like a panic attack and think, why did they hire me? I'm really stupid. What is wrong with these idiots? And you know, I'd go on this complete rant. And um, anybody who's kind of been through that knows, and when you're on the other side of it, it's funny, but in the moment it's not. But, but so I start telling kind of these personal stories about how I screwed up my finances and how my own attitude made it worse and, you know, just sort of poking fun at it. So, so that wasn't published by, I self-published that. Um, and, you know, I don't know, maybe, 200 people bought it and it's okay because I think those 200 people who are struggling with you know financial problems it's a very it's big it's heavy you know it's it's people who are in debt and having financial problems it's I mean people kill themselves because of it. it's a serious issue but at the same time levity you know so when I got to the other side of it now that I'm worth 18 million dollars none of this matters it's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> but now that, you know, that I got to the other side of looking at why I was making the decisions I made, it's kind of funny. Some of my attitudes were so ridiculous and really childish. And but now I can look at it and make a joke and and make it, I think, humorous. What, like, is, what is something that used uh -huh. to be like, you know, like really, you know, hit a chord with you? Like what is something that like was really tough for you to be able to talk about, but you can laugh about now, like something that you shared in your book? Oh, in the, the deading book? Yeah. Or the, oh, well, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking about it. I was like, should I go grab a thing and um, look at it? It's just around the corner. I think for me, oh, I'll tell you what. I used to have a big problem with um, authority. Mm. And so, you know, getting jobs, um, you know, it's like, I, I'd say, this is, this was one of the stories. I talk about how, like, I get a job. You know, I was never the girl, like at six, I was already planning my future. You know, I wasn't the kind of kid that was like running around going, I was having fun and I was doing my plays, but I still already had my plan for my master's degree at six. And, um, you know, I was never the kid that would be, or the woman who would be the assistant to the president. I was, I wanted to be the president, but I didn't really like want to work hard. So I wanted to be the president, 
but just kind of boss everybody around really not really have to do anything. <laughs> so, you know, I'd get these jobs and I'd be a shitty assistant because I didn't really want to be the assistant. I just wanted to be the boss, but I didn't want the responsibility. I didn't want to have to work so hard, even though I'm a hard worker, I didn't want to work for other people. So I'd get fired, you know, and I, you know, for me, it'd be like, well, he was a jerk. And the reality was I was the jerk, you know, I was the one who wasn't willing to, you know, pay my dues. Um, and you know, it took a few of those situations and losing jobs to realize, you know, you're kind of an ass, you're being an ass here. You got to check yourself. So it's kind of a level of, um, it, it, it's humbling to see that you're kind of the jerk in the situation and you're the one that has to make the change whether or not the boss is right or wrong. It doesn't matter. My job is to show up and do my job and, and do whatever's in front of me. I don't get to go. Oh, I, I like this part. I don't like that part. Um, but yeah, that I was, and what that really is, is just immaturity. You know, it's, it's immaturity and it's um, a lack of responsibility, but I find that when people have a lot of financial issues, that's kind of the core of it. We want something for nothing and we don't want to have to work hard. Yeah, you know, it is interesting and it goes to show like a, a lot of your growth, you know, like as a person being able to like reflect back and say, you know, like, you know, I just want to be able to be the boss, to be able to boss people around and not do the work. Like, like that's that's a scary thing to be able to admit as a person. And like, I, I applaud you immensely for being able to admit that. And, you know, like, like obviously, you know, like for me, it probably if I was you would still you know be hard to be able to like admit that you know like admit those things up but like it must be so cleansing to be able to release yourself of it knowing that like you know you can talk about it it might be hard but it's not something that you're imprisoned by anymore because i know like that was a big thing for me is i used to imprison myself by allowing other people um to be able to have that power and control over me because um, I was ashamed of, you know, like maybe things I've done in my life or, you know, like situations I've got myself into. And because I was ashamed of them, it gave other people the power to be able to control me through them. You know, but like once I like, you know, just let it all out publicly and I'm like, you know, like this is like who I am again. Like, you know, I've been a series of mistakes. That's why I'm here today. You know, like, and I will continue to make more mistakes and I'm fine with that because you know what? You will too. You're a human being. We all will be like that. And I want to be proud of my mistakes instead of being ashamed of them, because then at least I can walk through life with a clear conscience for myself. You know, and I see that you've afforded yourself that same opportunity by writing these books. Yeah, it gives you so I think it gives you some freedom and it gives other people freedom to, you know, be transparent to and, and make those, you know, make those honest, you know, be you know, revelations, you know, yeah, I mean, because we can all be jerks, you know, and it makes me think about like those in, in I used to work in advertising too. And, and it, it was just that everybody always wanted to be somewhere else, right? Like the creative director really wants to be making a movie. The, the writer, creative writer really wants to be writing a script. So everybody always wants to be somewhere. And one of the biggest lessons that I've learned and had to learn is to be wherever I am. Like if I'm right here right now, this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm really not supposed to be president of, um, I'm not supposed to be the president of, you know, Google or Facebook. I'm really supposed to be doing what I'm doing right here. Cause this is probably where I can best help with the people. And so, you know, as a result of this, I think, you know, it's become, you know, it, it's really important to think where can I serve other people too? It's this whole journey is not just about me and what I can get. But, um, when we start turning that around and saying, you know, what do I have to offer other people? How can I be of service to other people in life? 
it sort of sort of shifts and um, opportunities come that you never would have planned or you learn things or see things and that's really what happened for me in terms and terms of my career you know I didn't think I'd be doing what I, I'm doing now but it came to me and um, it's because I just said I've got to put one foot in front of the other and I've got to stop trying to live out there mm-hmm. and just be where I am today so present you know being present yeah and, and again I guess like that's kind of like the probably the best segue period into uh, like how you got into like what you do now and then you know kind of explain it more a little bit more about it so you know like like break it down like you know like like what is like what's got your two feet planted in that cement now that's got that stability for you that you wanted that you were seeking for like like what is your your nine to five now so you can go home and be able to write all night um well it's so what happened was i um i was hit really bad by the uh the uh 2009 crash and pretty much lost everything and was working in digital media um in business development and just realized that, you know, I was consulting and going from place to place because I'd get a gig and then the company would close because there was just, everybody was closing down. And so I realized that I had to come up with something else for myself for future. And so I went back, I mean, I have an undergraduate degree in marketing, but I went back to school and got an aesthetics license. And then from there I got a permanent makeup license. And then I, I trained with a woman who, um, used medical microneedling for areola repigmentation and scar revision. And truly, um, you know, this truly is just one of those things where it, it sort of fell on me. I, I don't know how it happened, but, you know, if if I'm to look at, you know, like how I look at life, which is that I have a, a, a higher power and a God that's guiding me, that this was meant to happen. And what happened was I started seeing clients. I started my own business. It took me about five, four years to really get it to where it was full time. And, um, I started seeing a lot of women and men that had hair loss. And so I started applying some of the things that I was using for skin, uh, a machine I was using, it's microneedling machine. And I started using that microneedling machine with peptides on people who had hair loss. And I got some good results and I thought, well, wait, maybe I've got something here. And I kept doing it. And, um, I, I kind of stumbled into this, uh, company just by calling around and asking questions that, uh, used stem cell cytokines. So these are bone from bone marrow. And I started using that serum along with my treatments for clients that had hair loss and I got really good results. And then what happened was I decided to, um, I started getting some inconsistent results and then I realized that if I wanted to do this right, I I needed to know what was in the formulation and I couldn't afford, it's like to get a formulation, it's called what a spectrometer test where they take every, every element that's in the serum and, and take it back to the lab. That's about $25,000 and I didn't have the money, but I had a feeling that the lab I was buying products from might be, kind of padding stuff with hyaluronic acid. So I um, just started calling around and calling and calling like I do and uh, asking questions. And I met on the phone, this biochemist who worked for L'Oreal with a background in hair science. And I asked him if I could hire him to help me come up with a serum that would really work for hair loss. And um, he said, that's kind of funny. That's the first time I've ever gotten this call. And I said, he was joking. So I started laughing and I said, yeah, that's funny. And he goes, no, I'm being serious. Nobody's ever, 
nobody wants to solve hair loss. And I said, you're joking, right? And he said, no, people just want to make money. And I said, well, if I'm going to be doing this, why wouldn't I want to solve the problem? It doesn't even seem like it's kind of pointless. And he goes, well, it's called greed. And you obviously aren't operating in that way. So I think I'll help you. So I paid him and we came up with this formulation. This is a really long story, but I'm trying to shorten it. No, no, no. I don't want you to shorten it at all because the thing is when people decide to be able to like step outside the box, because like, again, it's like this isn't, there's nothing to do with your passion, what drives you. And you know, like, but like you've become like successful in like this area that you never even thought was like a part of like who you are. So like, you know, don't skimp on the details, you know, like, like, you know, cause like, even like with me, I'm just like, well, like, who did you call? Or like, why did you call her? Like, how did you start using well, these peptides in the first yeah, place? You know, like, uh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to go back to that. Cause what, what happened was I, I called, um, I think UCLA, I called a couple of universities to see if they'd do that spectrometer test from they all told me it was 25,000. And I was like, I don't have $25,000. So I started calling like chemistry societies and universities and they would send me on this goose chase. And I'd call, I mean, so it took me about five or six months to find this gentleman. And um, he's, he was kind of funny. He, he's a little, you know, I don't know if you know, I don't know a ton of chemists or biochemists or scientists, but they're a little quirky and, you know, there would be days when he'd just send me an email and say, stop emailing me. You're bothering me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Gotta give the guy a little break. I'll give him a week and I'll contact him. So it wasn't, it was tooth and nails, you know, and eventually um, he came up, he came up with a formulation of the things that I should put in this. And I went to a lab and I invested basically all my savings, um, 75,000 to, to make these products and I kept treating people and getting good results. And, and then what I realized is that, so I do an in-office procedure where I use the medical microneedling with the growth factors. These are plant-derived growth factors. And um, I started using the serum, you know, in the office. And then I developed these products to take home because what happened originally, I thought I could just do the treatment in the office and everybody would get results. What I discovered is that, you know, hair loss is a symptom, not the problem. And so people need to do things at home. So I started looking at things like what is the lifestyle? What is the diet? How much do they exercise? Are they smoking? What medications are they taking? So it became more of like a whole program. And then I um, started, I just made the products. I, I really just launched it, the, uh, you know, the, the protocol is called Celestrius. And I just launched it about five or six months ago. And the goal is to take it from B to C, you know, where I see clients to B to B, where I'm training um, other doctors and med spas in the treatment. The beauty of it is that a a esthetician can actually do the work. It doesn't have to be a medical doctor. So that's nice to the doctor because that takes their time away. Um, And so I've trained, um, I'm just, I've just finished my first training. I'm getting ready to do some trials, like clinical trials. And then I have a couple more doctors that are interested. So it's become this thing that I'm sort of like a dog with a bone. Like if you tell me no and it can't work, then I now have to prove that it can work and it will work. So that's sort of what happened. I, I felt like I was getting bad goods. So I said, you're ripping me off and you're charging me a lot of money for this serum. And I don't think it's what you're telling me it is. And then I went, well, if it's not what it is, then I got to do something better. I've got to figure it out. So I did. And now, so, you know, now it's taking the B to C to B to B and, um, 
you know, it's a huge mountain. It's, I don't think I realized how, what it was like to be in the medical field and the pharmaceutical, you know, this industry, because there's a lot of competition and, um, it's just, I just, it's kind of the same thing. I just get up every day and I mean, I enjoy what I do. I love helping people have hair loss because they're really traumatized when they have, you know, have had something happen to their hair. It's hard. So I'm driven by helping them and helping them solve the problem. And at the same time, it's just a lot of work, but I, like, I am not the kind of person that I, I have to be doing something that matters to me. So it's very fulfilling. So, like, how is it a topical application of stem cells? Uh, and, like, or, or, like, what kind of explain that? Because I, um, yeah. I just want to be able to, like, wrap my mind around, like, the, you know, because, like, obviously there's no doubting that, you know, like, that stem cell treatments in, like, a, in a variety of different ways are just that, like, mir- miraculous results. But, um, like, I just don't understand it. And, like, that's, like, that's what I really yeah. just want to, like, pick your brain about. Because, like, I just, I don't understand, like, the, the stem cell treatments. And like what I thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like a topical application for like hair regeneration. Like, you know, kind of maybe like yeah. walk me through that process. Yeah. Okay. So, so just to differentiate, I don't use the stem cell cytokines for hair. I use those for skin. Oh, okay. So, okay. Um, yeah. And that was because what I realized is it, does, it didn't work for hair. So, um, when it comes to my clients that have like anti-aging or if they have scars, I'll use the stem cell cytokines, um, for that. So, so what happens, so, so it, it, with stem cells, what, what we're discovering, it used to be that people thought that stem cells, um, themselves were the healing agent. Um, but what they're discovering now is really the healing agent when it comes to the body, especially in the interior, like um, if we're talking joints and muscles and, and tears and things like that, or even the heart or the spine, it's the basically what the stem cell uh, is the fuselage of the stem cell. The thing that it extracts is called growth factors and cytokines. And these growth factors are what really is the magic of a stem cell. So it's not the stem cell in and of itself. It's what that what it produces outside itself that is called a growth factor. So, um, with the hair, what I, what I discovered through this biochemist was that we can use stem cells for hair. And there's a lot of doctors that use something called PRP. It's platelet rich plasma where they'll take your own blood cells. Um, they'll take your, a blood sample they'll centrifuge it they'll spin the blood and they'll extract the red blood cells and they'll they'll insert those into the top of your head with a medical needle um and that's one way that hair loss is treated now it's not the most effective way and i think it's because um you're getting the stem cells not the actual growth factors that are causing the hair to grow the other thing so in my research, what I discovered was that growth factors are more important than the stem cells. So um, there are companies that's, that make plant-derived growth factors. So what they'll do is they'll take from, say, turmeric or saw palmetto or um, uh, bio roots from ginseng, different things. They can extract those uh, factors and in the lab create a growth factor that will trigger 
the hair follicle. So it's a select group of different factors and minerals and enzymes that is in the serum that I use. And, and those are all targeted to helping the scalp heal, to helping um, DHT be inhibited, which is dihydrotestosterone, which is what a lot of males have a, um, a sensitivity to. That's what causes the shrinking of the follicle. And then things like, um, you know, we want to increase circulation, which is why the microneedling helps. So basically, together with this biochemist, um, I came up with a formulation that is plant-derived solution, and it is applied topically to the head in the treatment. And then I put the serum on the head, and then I take the needling, the microneedle, which is a series of very, very tiny needles, and go across the head, and it brings up just a tiny bit of an arrhythmia. So it's not blood, it's just super pink. And what that does is that allows the brain, um, excuse me, it allows the scalp to absorb all that serum. And it also causes what's known as a wound growth, wound growth response, which means the body starts flooding that area with collagen and fibroblasts and all the things we need to be to heal the skin. So in addition to that, I have people do vitamins like D3, omega-3s, look at their diet. Are they smoking? What kind of medication are they taking? <clears throat> because, I don't know if I just said this, but hair loss is not the problem. It's just the symptom of an underlying problem. And that problem can be many things. Hormones can be testosterone, estrogen imbalance, can be toxicity, inflammation. And so I'm trying to look at it from the most holistic perspective there is without using drugs like propatia or finasteride or surgery or transplants. And growth factors are proving to be right now the latest scientific, the closest thing we can get to having results. Um, I've treated about 150 people over the last three years and 90% um, of them have had a response between 20 and 40% hair growth and it's real hair. It's not baby hair. It's what I believe is that we're going to discover that, um, hair follicles are like, um, brain cells and nerve cells. You know, we used to think that once they were damaged or, or stopped working, that they were dead. And now we know that's not true. They can be regenerated. I believe the same thing with hair follicles. Um, just because a hair follicle isn't firing just means that it's not firing. It's dormant. It doesn't mean it's dead. Mm -hmm. And until absolute proof is that it's dead, we can try to re-trigger it. And that's what I'm trying to do with this serum. Wow. That's just such like a process. It's just, it's, I just, I love it because like I, I geek out on like science, you know, you know, like just everything to do with the body, like all the time. Like it's just, it's my, my wheelhouse. I'm just like, I'm so intrigued. Like, you know, like when you're talking about like, it just, it blows my mind, like how far away from writing screenplays that is. But like when you're talking about, you're so vested in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. That's why I said I don't. I have no idea why this, what happened, or why it happened. I think that I just have an inquiring mind, and I'm really nosy. So like, I, I just can't not get to the bottom of it. And you know, this, it's just, um, it's another path. It's another journey I'm on, and and I like to kind of go as far as I can with it. Um, and maybe all of the everything you know i believe everything we do leads us to where we are and so this is the point maybe this is a moment in time and i got to be one of the vessels that's helping other people do something you know i mean without the chemist this wouldn't have never happened you know without me calling him without him saying look 
all right, I'll help you out. So it's just time for it, you know, and I'm not saying it's the panacea, but it certainly helped a lot of people. And that's what makes me happy, you know, is to be able to have some people go, thank you so much. I'm getting my hair back and it feels good. And I feel pretty again, or I feel attractive. Um, but that's always what motivates me. You know, it's, it's always that human connection, no matter what it is. Um, and if it turns out that this gets to more people and helps more people, then, you know, that makes me really happy. Yeah, you know, and I think it's like, you know, one of those things like the, what you just noted was that, you know, I think we can't argue, you know, like when we start off on a path, you know, like if that path becomes more clear, there's more opportunities, you know, like more people like come our way, there's more, you know, like why we choose sometimes to be able to walk away or walk off that path to me is like astonishing. And I used to be that same way too. But like now, if I feel like there's any pull from like life's energy that I should be expressing, like all of a sudden, like I'll be getting like emails from certain people or, you know, like, like with this, you know, like, you know, like I reached out to you, you know, just like a few days ago and all of a sudden we're here. It's like, I would just, because like the simplicity and how easy it was, I'm like, this is something that needs to happen. Like this is a conversation that needs to be had. Like there might be benefit today or a week or in a month from now but like yeah. when things are like that simple like to me what I know in my life now is like there's no denying now that I need to be able to express that opportunity because there's some benefit that I need to explore or that's going to come my way because of that or your way or like somebody who's listening to this like what you said like there's there's some reason why that like this information and our conversation should be projected out to the world because it's simply how easy it was to be able to formulate this discussion us to be able to sit down and like have this time to be able to have this conversation and stuff so um yeah and like and like i said just like like overall like a few questions i want to like ask you specifically with these stem cells did um did it blow you away when you started researching like stem cells and like the treatments like just like the amount of like options and like the availability and like and just not really understanding like why it has taken us so long and it's so hard for us to be able to get on board with like using stem cells to be able to treat so many different, you know, like, you know, conditions, ailments, tears and stuff like that because of like just like the overwhelming amount of like, you know, evidence that's starting to emerge about how like useful stem cell treatments can be in like almost everything. Yeah, I mean, so I think um, I, I had the, the good luck, like you said, you know, things happen. I got I, this uh, stem cell um, uh, uh, conference. They reached out to me and said, you're doing some really cool stuff. Would you like to come speak? And I was like, it's a medical conference. No, I'm not coming. And they were like, well, why? And I go, because I'm not a doctor. Why? You know, I was really like a jerk about it. I was kind of like why are they bothering me? I, I don't have the money to go to, you know, I was kind of cranky about it. And they go, we don't think you understand. We're asking you to come speak at the conference and we're going to give you a booth. And I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, so, um, I thought it was another like sales thing and it wasn't. And through that, I've met so many amazing doctors and, um, but what I what I recognized and and saw in with a lot of these doctors because there are a lot of regenerative medicine doctors and and that's a newer field. Um, so here's what happens: it's um, it's such a like a microcosm of the world of politics of everything, right? Even in medicine, creativity is is kind of shunned um, because if a doctor has a practice and he wants to do something with, say, stem cells, or he wants to try some alternative um, medicine, 
he's bound by so many things. He, she is bound by so many things, FDA, rules, liability. They want, some of them genuinely want to help and bring new technology, but they're hamstrung. It's, innovation can occur when everything's tied up with bureaucracy, right, and rules. And yet you don't want people going off the farm and, and causing harm to people. And yet at the same time, it's like the drug companies have such a big hold on, on doctors. So stem cells are not part of that drug company thing. You know, they're not big pharma yet. So any doctors who choose to use stem cells are going outside of the realm of what is the box, right? So they run a lot of risks, a lot of liabilities when they do that, and they could lose their practice. Um, and it's serious stuff, you know, that this is their livelihood. They have children too. They have families. So, you know, they're no different than the guy or girl that works at a factory. It's like, I still have to feed my kids. So I have a lot of respect for the ones that do step out and try things, but they are definitely watched by big, big, whatever they're called, big pharma, FDA. And so they can't do too much unless they go to different countries. And that's the bottom line is that they, some of, some of them leave because they're so hamstrung. Um, but as far as the knowledge, the depth of knowledge and what's out there, it's, it's mind boggling, but we are at a, at a point where, I mean, we can create with 3d imprinting, we can actually create a heart. So it's weird it's like we're at this weird place where some of it's still really primitive but then it's light years ahead of where we really are and so it takes a you know it takes a mindset of a brilliant doctor who's also willing to take risks and they're not rewarded for risks at all Um, yeah and it's like you know like the regulations are in this stone age you know and like the like the information and the innovation is like like you said light years down the road you know and it's like like there's like a a ton of really good you know like data out there now and like like opinion that says you know like the medical industry is about a decade behind of like where it should be and like the biggest problem that i have with that is you know like we're all getting like misinformed with like you know like healthcare you know like what healthcare is supposed to mean and you know like i know chris kressler always talks about it like we don't have healthcare we have disease management you know and i look at myself i just choose to you know be active and live healthy and it's probably been over a decade since i've been to the doctor and people are like well don't don't you want to go just to know if there's anything wrong and i'm like i know there's nothing wrong you know i'm like like I'm, I'm totally fine. You can't, you can't. I don't need the reassurance of going to say everything is fine because, like, I'm, yeah. I'm doing what I feel as though is right. You know, like I eat healthy. I, you know, I go work out. You know, I stay active. I do all these things, and it's like, like, why should there be something wrong? You know, like, like I just find like our, our healthcare system. You know, in Canada, and I know you guys are very much in, in like the United States, and you know, like I find it staggering like that the statistics in the United States that if you guys keep spending the same amount on healthcare and it increases over the years by 2040 a hundred percent of your federal budget will be spelt on or spent on healthcare you know and like that's why like the department of defense listed american citizens as the number one existential threat to america because of like the healthcare crisis and it's like you know like when are we willing to be able to wake up and like a big part of that is things like you know like stem cell research how we just 
you know, we imprison ourselves because we just don't want to step outside the box, you know, and then we have like in, in like incredible intuitive innovators like yourself that have just been like, no, you know, like there's something wrong with this formula I'm getting is I'm getting inconsistent results. I'm going to go home. I'm going to do all my own research because I have all these resources available to me now. No, I don't need to go to school for eight or 10 years to be able to understand this. I just have to put time in. I have to want to understand it. Now you've come up with a product that's incredibly innovative and you're going to speak at conferences in front of all the people who spent eight or 10 or 12 years going to school because like we have that opportunity now and I that alone is the basis of why I can't even comprehend why you know our healthcare system is like a decade behind where it should be you know yeah it's um it is mind-boggling and I think that um it's it's a really it just opened my eyes up so much to where the future of medicine is and, and it is in regenerative. It's regenerative medicine. Um, the typical person though that, that I don't see people that are typical people, most people I see are people that have that are a little more aware of what's going on with their body and yet at the same time we've all been, it's been drilled into our head that we can take a drug and fix it and I'm kind of trying to break that apart and say no yes you may have a gene genetic predisposition to thing but until you trigger that gene with something outside itself that gene will never actually be expressed that's what you know they talk about the human genome product project in the in the 90s and what it was supposed to do was to help us to be able to identify all the all our like dna and what we were predisposed to have well the reality is that i could carry a gene for all kinds of things but until i trigger it by my behavior by toxicity by the things that i expose myself to over time and a lot of it's diet related a lot of it's stress and toxicity that gene will never be expressed so we can turn genes on and off and that's sort of what these plant derived growth factors are able to do they're able to help turn a certain part of um you know a follicle or we're at that point where we can do it without like actually going in and doing surgery but but as long as we have a populace that thinks i'll just do what i want and then when it gets bad i'll go get a, a drug for it or i just want to pay attention to it and then i'll go get a drug i mean it's it's amazing to me that some of the side effects of things like propatia that men take for hair loss includes erectile dysfunction and potentially um you know loss of functionality and fertility for life you're willing to risk that just because you will make some changes in your behaviors but it's true which so, is you know like um, so indicative to like all the drugs that like you know like people take it's like you know like you take your drug for depression that's going to give you depression you take a drug for your suicidal thoughts that's going to give you suicidal thoughts like you know and again like we don't even need to be walking down that road because again you know like there's you know like people like you like innovators like you have come up with products it's just like you know you're not running those risks of side effects you know like you don't have you know to be able to worry you know like about those issues and stuff and you know like that's why like I just like absolutely commend you know people like you for stepping outside that box and saying like you know like we can tackle this and you know like this is something that like you know like like every or like every regular everyday people you know can do if we just choose to want to be able to invest the time and investigate the tools that we have um at our disposal and stuff so um well, thank you. That, that, that really makes my day i appreciate that because i don't think about it in that way i you know i'm in the trenches so i'm like how do i how do I figure this out? But you're right. It's it's um, 
it's a it's a task and it it doesn't have to come from a doctor you know it doesn't have to come from someone who's spent 20 years in school it can just be someone who's dedicated and and hopefully the right people will continue to to come into my orbit to help me get there yeah absolutely why don't you um kind of like outlay your uh like your your instagram facebook whatever social media you're on like website you know how people get a hold of you um the whole bit and stuff so that you know it's like like i just like i want people to be able to explore just you know if anything it just to be able to spark people's curiosity being like you know like hey what can i do you know like like you know like this woman like she's just she's passionate about writing like screenplays and scripts and books. And it's like, you know, now she's researching like human genes and, you know, gene expression and, you know, stem cell treatments and, you know, like just showing like the absolute like diversity of life. So, you know, even if like people have some like questions, they can be able to throw your way, throw all that stuff out there. So if, you know, people want to get in contact with you, they can get in contact with you. Okay. And thanks, Blake. I just, I really appreciate you having me on. This has been a really fascinating, fun conversation. I mean, everybody loves to talk about themselves. I, I, so it's like what it, it's of course it's fun but um, no it's been really you know interesting and, and your questions are just so uh, thoughtful so I appreciate that um, so if they want to reach out to me they can, if they want to learn more about my hair loss process um, they can go to my website which is my name it's spelled M-I-S-T-I B-A-R-N-E-S dot com, MistyBarnes dot com. On Instagram I'm MistyBarnes underscore Ideal Skin Clinic same thing on Facebook, Misty Barnes Ideal Skin Clinic. And then if they want to email me, they can email me at info at idealbeautyskinclinic.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Misty. I really appreciate you. you being on the show today. Okay. Thank you, Blake. Have a good rest of the day. And, and I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Thank you.